should you become a GP partner? What are the pros and cons of being a GP partner? And should you request a copy of the practice accounts before joining a partnership? What about property ownership, pensions, tax, profit shares, and last man standing? On today's podcast, we will cover this and more. It's a longer episode, but there is so much to pack in because there's just so much to consider for GPs thinking about joining a partnership. And it's very rare to get any high quality education about what is a massive personal and business decision. And it's surprising that you don't get any education about this really because as I say GP partners are not only clinicians but also responsible for running a small or indeed medium-sized business. So we've decided to do something about this lack of education and we have launched the Medics Money New to GP Partnership course. Using our skills as both GP partners but also accountants and tax advisors we've selected the best advisors to teach and support you on the Medics Money New to GP Partnership course. We're going to teach you the essential financial and business aspects of being a GP partner, such as how to understand the accounts and the key financial metrics that will increase profitability and deliver the best care to your patients. But we're also going to cover the equally important topics of managing your workload, looking after your own health and well-being so that you can be the best GP partner you can be, whilst also being the best mother, father, husband, wife, partner and doctor that you can be. The good news about the new to GP partnership course is that for eligible GP partners, it is fully funded by the NHS. So that means that there is no cost to you. And the first cohort of the Medics Money course is starting in October. The bad news is I casually mentioned the course on a webinar recently, and we have only 12 spaces remaining for the October cohort. So if you are a new GP partner, or you know a new GP partner who would benefit from getting the education that they need to thrive in their new role, then be sure to visit www.medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course or check the show notes where I've put the link. So on today's podcast, you will not be surprised to hear that we are going to give you a quick overview of all of the key issues that you should think about when joining a GP partnership. As ever, the Medics Money podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute any form of financial or accounting advice and accounting thresholds and tax rates are subject to change. Welcome to the Medics Money podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by specialist medical accountants, Chris Clark and Rob Glentworth, who are from Moore Scourett Healthcare. Hi, guys. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for joining us today. So we're going to be talking about something really interesting today about for doctors who are considering becoming a GP partner. But before we do that, do you want to just tell the Medics Money podcast listeners a bit about yourself and why you're qualified to talk on today's topic? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having us on today. Um, So myself and Chris, the Associate Directors, as you say, of Morscara Healthcare, Specialist Medical Accountant based down in Taunton in Somerset in the Southwest. Uh, we kind of what we do is we take our healthcare expertise and that of our team and combine it with the more commercial acumen and tax mitigation work of the Morse Garrett Group. 
I think traditionally we found that the healthcare service accountancy-wise can be quite cyclical and reactive. So it's just trying to bring a bit more of a proactive look at that. Um, So we've got a fully national client base all across the medical spectrum, but our prime focus is definitely general practice. I think about 90% of our client base is within general practice, combination of PCNs that we act for, GP practices themselves, and of course, individual GPs. I think the reason we sort of focused on general practice is, personally, I feel that it gets a bad press, especially partnership. Um, so if you look across some of the specialist publications, um, GP Online, the sort of daily updates, these sorts of things, it can be a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of telling everybody how bad GP partnership is and then wondering why there's succession issues and we need to pay people to become GP partners. So that was where kind of our business came from and also where our um, desire to speak to you about the subject matter today came from, to be honest, sort of putting a bit more of a positive spin on general practice and partnership and actually hopefully um, encouraging people that it is a still a rewarding both financially and otherwise in terms of a career path. Um, and of course, succession is kind of at the heart of everything within general practice at the moment, whether that's the property issues, the partnership model itself. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a little bit about us and why we think that today is a good session for us to be talking on. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. And Chris? Yeah, just uh, just to follow up on what uh, Rob says. Yes, I mean, we're uh, medical specialists. We've been doing this between us for probably two decades. Uh, we've got a complete specialist team down here in Taunton. But as Rob said, we service a client base uh, nationwide. Uh, currently act for a large number of GP practices, um, <clears throat> individual doctors and so on, uh, and all of the usual accounts, tax needs, but we think a lot more as well. And yeah, big, big interest of ours is certainly new partners and um, and assisting them in particular in what can be quite a quite a, a tricky time in the, in their career. And it's something that yeah, people won't have uh, seen before. So I think uh, it's um, it's definitely relevant for people like us to just help them through that maze. We think so that's why, as Rob said, I think this session is really important today. Yeah, and I think you raise a really good point. As a recently bought-in GP partner myself, there's so much negativity about a partnership, uh, and I think some of that's justified because you know there are difficult partnerships out there. But the right partnership can be incredibly rewarding professionally, uh, an incredibly mm. supportive environment to work in, and let's not beat about the bush. Uh, the right partnership can also be financially rewarding as well. But I think nobody teaches GPs um, what what you know what are the common pitfalls and what do we need to do and what does a good partnership look like. So. I think we should just get straight into it because I'm really excited to learn about this. So um, maybe someone's listening to this, they're a GP locum or GP salaried and uh, they've, you know, they're looking for a partnership. What should they be looking for? Oh, no, thanks, Tommy. I think from our point of view, broadly, I'd break that down into to two things. You've kind of got the financial aspects and the non-financial aspects. And as an accountant, I'm probably going to surprise you and start with the non-financial aspects because I think that's what a potential new partner should do, if I'm honest with you. Um, so the very first thing I would be looking at is kind of cultural fit, uh, the value system of the practice and kind of how that fits with you. Obviously, there's there's a bit of a, a traditional pathway in terms of kind of registrar, salary, GP partner. If you're following that, that's a lot easier because obviously you've been on the ground, you've got a feel for what's going on there. So how well do you know the practice? I think that's important. But even if that isn't the case and you haven't come through that route and it's a new practice, I think you need to take the time to try and get under the skin of it a little bit and understand that culture and that value system. 
Now, whether that's kind of um, your own research or whether it's kind of a six-month probationary period, which wouldn't be unusual, something like that, because, you know, this is a big thing, joining a partnership, and and ultimately, you don't want to spend your career dipping in and out of partnerships. Yes, there will be changes from time to time for, for whatever reason, but you want to view it as, as sort of a stable, long-term project in most cases. Um, so also on the non-financial side, I suppose, looking at kind of the location and the building itself, um, is it somewhere that you actually want to work? You know, patient demographics, are you in a city centre with kind of the sort of patients that clinically you like to work with? Um, and then also within that, the staffing structure at the practice, the governance, those sorts of things. I think it's really, really important to do those bits first. So don't just think, I want to be a partner, see an advert, get onto an accountant, how much money am I going to make? I just wanted to point that out just for a couple of minutes and just say, look, take a step back, divorce yourself from the finances, because the natural question is, how will that compare to my earnings as a salary, that kind of thing. It's very much take that time to select the right practice first is, is my first bit of advice. But then absolutely, we come on to the financial decisions and you know, how much money am I going to make is the age-old question for a GP partner. And the reason that's difficult is most people, as you already alluded to, have probably been a sessional GP, uh, salary GP or something before, and it's very easy to know what you make, you know, 10,000 a session or 300 pounds a session for a local, that kind of thing. So how do you value a partner session is what it comes down to. Um, and that's where there can actually be quite a significant variance. Um, but you may be willing to accept lower profits, for example, as a younger partner, if, you, if it allows you to live in an urban area, that kind of thing. And you have to just take all of these things into account. Now, Chris is going to go into a bit more detail on some of those shortly when we come on to look at um, should you get a copy of the accounts and scrutinise them. So at the moment, we won't go into too much detail in terms of that. But the other sort of general considerations that you need to think about are dispensing practices versus non-dispensing practices. Now, a lot of that will be driven um, based on where you are geographically. Property ownership versus non-property ownership. We're going to have a specific little section on that. But, you know, do you want to be a property owner? Are you happy joining a partnership who rent their premises and to be on the lease, that kind of thing? Um, and then just breaking down the business, I think, and making sure this is a really important one. If you're in the fortunate position of looking at two or three partnerships, it's not as straightforward as just sitting down with bottom line profit figures and going, I'm going to join A, B, or C. You have to make sure that you're comparing apples with apples. So certain partnerships, you might be looking at two that have got property profit and one that hasn't, one with a dispensary, two that don't, all of these sorts of things. Subscriptions could be going through the practice or they could be paid personally. So that's where you need to kind of get your specialist medical accountant involved just to break it all down, strip it back and say, like for like, how are these practices performing? And then just one final point before we look into the accounts in a bit more detail, I think and this is probably something that we've added over the last sort of 18 months to these sorts of discussions is where does your practice fit into your PCN and then the wider healthcare system? So as a new partner, that's going to be crucial. You know, two and a half years ago, that wouldn't have meant anything to most people, apart from a few people that knew they were coming. But as more and more funding is going into PCNs, more staffing resources going into PCNs, there's a PCN estate strategy coming around the premises. I think if I was going to be joining a partnership, it's absolutely crucial for me to understand where that fits within that network. And then also the, the sort of ICS, the care system more locally and, and what the future looks like over the next five, 10 years. Because ultimately, as I said right at the start of this, 
if you're going to be a partner, likelihood is you're going to be there for the next five or 10 years, hopefully, all being well. So it's important just to get a feel for that side of it as well, I think. That was an amazing summary of all the issues. And <laughs> I'm really excited to get into the detail on that. But I do want to pick up on two things you said. Uh, I'm really glad you started by not talking about the money. I mean, medics money, we're going to talk about the money. Don't worry, it's coming. Um, <laughs> but cultural fit is so important. When I was locuming before I took my partnership, I used that locuming opportunity to visit as many different practices locally as possible. And I was amazed by how different they all were. And they're all performing the same function, but their patients are so different their way they work are so different. Um, And I was even more amazed by another thing you said, uh, the variance in earnings. Uh, We'll get onto that, but I'm always surprised by, you know, it's the same business doing the same thing and the variance in earnings uh, can be massive. And it is not all about the earnings because all those other things you mentioned are so important. But can we get into the details a bit? Because one thing doctors ask us a lot is, okay, I've seen a partnership. I like them. We're a good cultural fit. I know that maybe I've worked there as a salary before. Um, you know, should I get a copy of the accounts? Right. Well, I think the easy answer to that is absolutely 100% without question. And I think the main reason for that is you have to sort of have a slight mindset change when you're thinking of becoming a partner. Because what you're effectively doing, a lot of people miss this, is you are becoming a partner in a multi-million pound business. Now, I think there's historically been a bit of a you know, public sector mentality amongst uh, uh, GPs, thinking that you know I'm just going to carry on doing what I was before. But you know, these things are changing. And as I say, what you're doing is becoming potentially a business owner in a very, very large business. Now, if you take this out of the medical sphere, if you were going to you know, own a business or um, take on a business, you absolutely would be looking at the financial aspects of it. So that's absolutely the same uh, in this scenario. You have to see what you're buying into. And it's absolutely essential, in our opinion, that any potential partner has a look at the last set of practice accounts, probably the last two years, in fact, and gets them looked at by a specialist medical accountant because they're not like normal accounts. They have their own language. There's a lot of things to take in with them. And there are so many things that, can potentially go wrong with them as well. So yeah, it's absolutely essential that you get good advice before you make that decision. Now, in terms of what that can look like and what you need to actually find out, I mean, the, the obvious one is how much you're going to earn. So what are the profits per whole-time partner? A whole-time partner we consider to be an eight-session partner. But things like, are there any odd items in the accounts? Are there unexplained items? Is there something that's going up that um, for some reason or something that was in last year's that isn't this year? You know, what, what is the reason for that? What's the capital requirement in the accounts? You know, what's, um, what sort of capital levels are partners currently holding? Is there property? And how much equity is there in that property? Will you be expected to buy into that property? Now, the key thing here is that you know, as accountants, we see a lot of accounts and we see that a lot of the accounts out there are really quite confusing documents. You, know, you often see like 30-page documents of huge swathes of figures that don't necessarily tell you a great deal. So it's vital that as a new partner who won't have seen that before, that they have someone just to explain that to them and to you know, kind of break it down and tell them the figures that they actually need. Because fundamentally, you want to know what is the profit, what's your working capital, and what is the, um, the property, if, um, if, uh, if relevant. Now, also, if it's a dispensing practice, it's absolutely essential that you have a separate dispensing account in there so you can see what sort of profits or otherwise uh, that's making. 
it should all be clear and concise. You know, accounts that you're looking at, you just want some clear accounts with concise figures that you can easily see what your position is. And it, it does take a good specialist accountant to really guide you through that. So, yeah, I mean, in short, absolutely 100% get a copy of the accounts. It may cost you a few hundred quid to get an accountant to have a look at them. But it is absolutely worth it. It's an investment in your future, basically. It's not a cost to you. And I think as well, just on that, as a potential new partner, especially um, the accounts, as you refer, uh, refer to, have a kind of a language of their own. So just picking them up yourself. And yes, you might be able to look at the net practice income and that kind of thing and get a feel for it. But ultimately, what a specialist medical accountant or certainly what we would do, and I'm sure others would do, is provide you kind of with a written summary as well. So, you know, breaking it down rather than just looking because, you know, I've got GP partners, some of whom can look at a set of accounts and understand every single figure in them. And that's absolutely fine. I've got others who might pick them up and it may as well be written in a foreign language. So, you know, we, for example, at the year end would provide a written report to go alongside the financials because people take things in in different ways. And as a potential new partner, I think that's really important because as a salary GP, chances are you've been looking at your pay slip and not a lot else in terms of money, maybe a P60 at the year end. Um, or how much your expenses have cost, but you certainly probably haven't, as a matter of course, been looking through big chunky sets of GP practice accounts. So just another little point there. And on just um, one final thing, sorry to me, that you mentioned about sort of specifics is you were really surprised in the fluctuation between practices. So there's reasons for that, because obviously core funding wise, you do get a set amount uh, per weighted patient. Um, now, obviously the weighting, is different in certain areas. So if you have a higher weighting, you will receive higher core funding. And that's just based on um, the demographics of your patients effectively. So yes, you can do a little bit of an exercise on that, but to a certain extent, they are what they are. Where we see practices gaining potentially a real advantage would be in what we would call in inverted commas, outside income. So effectively non-NHS income which traditionally would have been kind of small amounts uh, of research reports, those kind of things. But this is kind of really ramped up in recent years. There's some big contracts flying around. You know, we've got practices that do uh, private school work, care homework, army barracks. Again, some of this is geographic and, and good luck. But if you if you actually have a look at the accounts and get somebody to have a look at the accounts for you, they can kind of say, look, there's a really good level of private income here as well. That kind of enhance your profits without the need for a dispensary necessarily. So just a couple of specific examples there of sort of ways to enhance that income a bit further. Yeah. Um, and I'm always, you know, really surprised by how many people don't ask for the accounts. When I was looking for a partnership and I asked for the accounts, they were like, oh, you're the first person to ask for that. I'm like, yeah, really? Um, and yeah, definitely they're, they're really niche specialist advice needed. It's going to cost you a couple of hundred quid, but for me, it was money well spent. And also... You know, I, I actually learned a lot about the accounts. And now when we have an accounts meeting and I'm looking at them, uh, you know, that initial meeting that I had with a, an accountant was invaluable because I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what that means. I know what that means. And oh, that's gone down and I know why. So uh, I also learned what brackets mean as well, right? Brackets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see brackets on the bottom line. Yeah. Think... So <laughs> do you want to just say what brackets mean? <laughs> brackets are negative basically <laughs> yeah yeah so if you're if your profit or figure or, if your profit figure or your capital is in brackets then don't join <laughs> good <laughs> free advice i love it uh, but yeah i definitely learned about the brackets uh, which was cool um so you've got the accounts uh, you're cold, good cultural fit it's in the right area for you 
you know, how can you work out? You mentioned, you alluded to this already. If you're a salaried uh, doctor, you, you know what you're going to get paid. It's written down in a contract. Uh, not the same for GP partners. How do you know what you're going to get paid? Okay, I think what we need to do here is just, again, just consider the mindset change that you need to go through when you're becoming a partner. Now, it's likely that if you've been a salaried GP, you've been used to receiving the same amount every month, net pay in your, in your pay packet. It may not be the case if you're a locum, of course, but uh, as a partner, it's absolutely not the case. You will be paid by what we call drawings, and drawings are literally amounts that you draw from your business. And the first thing to make perfectly clear, it is not a salary. Uh, we still get GP partners of you know 10 years plus standing talking about the salary they receive from their practice. It's absolutely not the case. So vitally important you get out of that mindset from the start. What drawings are, in effect, is an on-account distribution of anticipated profits you're going to make for the year, and they fluctuate year on year. Now, hopefully, they will remain stable and increase. In some circumstances, they can decrease. So that's something that you need to be aware of from the start. It's kind of the risk of being a business owner. Again, coming back to your change in status, effectively. Now, the quid pro quo of that is that the earnings should be much higher than a salary GP. And if they're not much in the same way as the, the brackets issue, then something's wrong <laughs> as a rule. Um, so how do you actually predict this? Well, a good practice accountant should be able to project likely profits for a new partner based on the sessions they're working, what they know of the practice and its history, the partner's circumstances and so on. They should take account of partners' pension contributions, partners' tax, where that's paid by the practice, which we'll come to later, and take all of that and come up with an expected drawings figure. So that will be the amount you receive each month as a partner, in effect. Now, as I say, this can change. It can go down as well as up if profits are not as expected. And this should be made clear to any new partner, just to avoid any nasty surprises in the future. But also, of course, it's it's vital that the accountant is you know, doing this correctly, basically. Um, some accountants are quite cautious with these things. Some are not so. I think it depends on the individual. You know, I mean, a, a new partner may say, actually, I, I want to be a bit cautious about it in the initial term, just to um, so I don't overdraw. But yeah, it's absolutely something that, again, you should be working with the practice accountants to know what you're going to draw before you start, basically. Now, a key thing to remember here in terms of drawings is regardless of how much you actually draw from the business, you'll be taxed on your profits. So you're always taxed on your profits from the business, even if you take nothing out of that business. And that's, again, something that uh, a lot of new partners don't necessarily get their heads around in the, uh, in the first year. Reducing the amount you draw from the practice will not lead to a reduction in your tax bill, basically. So we have these drawings that you have throughout the year. At the end of the year, if all has been you know, worked out uh, correctly and all has been as expected and budgeted, it should pretty much even out. But what we often see at the end of the year is excess profits in uh, a set of surgery accounts. So effectively, you've not drawn enough. You, know, you still have a decent amount still left in the business to draw. And what we do once a year then is just do what we call an equalisation payment. And that's distributes any excess profits that have been made after the drawings are taken account of and can give nice additional payouts to partners, sometimes once a year, sometimes twice a year. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's a further distribution of tax to profit, so it's not something that you will be taxed on as a partner. Now, in a worst case scenario, we may find that the drawings have been excessive 
in the year and you're actually either overdrawn in your working capital or you have insufficient working capital. Now, if that happens, it's not ideal. Obviously, it's kind of suggests something's gone wrong, whether the profitability of the practice hasn't been what expected or in some cases the accountant has just got it wrong, which we also do see, unfortunately. Um, if this does happen, you just have to have a discussion about what we do going forward, whether that's reducing drawings in the future or in some cases actually paying money back into the practice. But it's something obviously we we want to avoid at all costs. So it is vital that this drawings calculation is done correctly from the start, really, and that new partners in particular are fully aware of its implications. I think that's one other thing, again, for a new partner is where we say the culture of the practice, it might be the drawing strategy. So we have practices that operate on a full extraction policy, i.e. it's my money, I want it, which is absolutely fine if you've got domestic mortgages and things like that. Um, We've got others that are quite cautious and hold um, huge swathes of capital. And then we've got everything in between, you know, and, and ultimately you can work, you can, as a group of partners, you can sort of set your um, aspirations. It's your business at the end of the day. So your accountant shouldn't be dictating to you in terms of drawings, levels, capital retention. They should really just be there as a sounding board and to give, you know, to use their expertise to say, we would suggest it in this range, depending on what you as partners want. And as long as you kind of accept that, you know, Chris mentioned that the biannual um, capital distribution. So a lot of our GP partners pay their own tax. So they'll draw gross from the practice and be responsible for their own tax bills. And unsurprisingly, quite often have their distributions in January and July when it's panic stations <laughs> <laughs> tax bill season. So, or, or yeah, so it's just, there, there is a little bit of flexibility there as a partner. Um, whereas, as we've already alluded to, when you're salaried, you get X amount, which is good in some ways, but actually a well-run practice, being a partner, this should be seen as a positive, not as a negative and something else to manage. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think that brings me nicely on to my next question, because something that is definitely not taught to us in medical school about working capital and how that's financed because depending on how much capital the GP hold uh, that can be a big bill when you're buying in so should we talk a bit about that yeah sure no um, I would say this is the one aspect of a set of GP accounts that confuses GPs the most in my experience is the capital accounts be that working capital or property capital you know I think I think generally um, you guys sort of sit down and we can run through the profit and loss, look at the profitability of a practice, your individual share of that. And then we kind of get to the capital. And because it's sort of not seen as a physical thing, it's something that we kind of have to take a bit of time to explain to our clients. So in terms of working capital first, before we look specifically at property in a minute, it's basically just seen as your share of the day-to-day funds of the business. Um, And quite often we'll have clients say, I'm a one quarter share partner. I'm leaving on the 30th of June. So I'll just take a quarter of what's in the bank, right? Um, and I'll be on my way. And it's just explaining that no, it's the net assets of the business. So it's looking at all of the assets, less all of the liabilities to get to that working capital balance. Often referred to as current account as well, which can sometimes add another layer of confusion because people then start to equate it to the bank account. And I think that's probably where those type of queries about I'll have my share of the bank account come from. So we try and call it working capital where we can just to keep that distinction. I think traditionally, there was quite an onerous um, level of working capital being asked for on new partners. But it, you know, 
30 or 40,000 potentially per whole time equivalent. So maybe if we said 5,000 pounds per session. So if you wanted to join as an eight session partner, it wouldn't have been unusual to see, okay, that's fine. We want 40,000 pounds. You know, you could, you could go to Lloyd's or any of the healthcare lenders, get that money, no problem. And it, and it was fine. But ultimately, as we've seen partnership become less attractive for a multitude of reasons, um, I think generally speaking, that requirement is coming down, which personally I see as a positive. In terms of whatever that figure is, in terms of where the money's coming from, there's kind of three options. One, you've got £40,000 in the bank and you fire it in. Fairly unusual, um, straight out of medical school. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, as a young GP looking to become a partner, fairly atypical to have 40000 sat around and think, yeah, I'll just chuck that in. Um, so for the most common route was always a business loan. So again, you would go to um, one of the lenders, probably the practice lender, if you had a personal lender already, show them the accounts. For them, it's a very safe investment. It's lending a GP money to buy into a profitable GP practice whose customer is the government, effectively. So there wasn't much trouble around getting the finance. Another reason that's quite an attractive way of doing it is if you take a business loan, any interest that you pay on that loan is a tax deductible expense, which we always like. Um, so at the year end, when you're doing your tax returns, you actually get tax relief on any loan interest on a business loan. Now, this is a really, really easy win for clients that a lot of people miss, to be honest. And it's any business debt that you take, I would be looking to take it over the longest possible term. Any personal debt that you take, I'd be looking to take it over the shortest possible term because you get into a situation where people won't borrow to buy into the business, but are more than happy to pay a mortgage rate on which they get no tax relief. So just from a little bit of chat with your accountant and general sort of commercial observation, you can you can sort of have an easy win there because if you've got debt here where you're not attracting tax relief, it makes sense to pay that off before the debt here where you are attracting tax relief. And then the third, the third route, which is becoming more and more popular, is to restrict drawings. So ultimately, if you were going to join a partnership and they were going to ask for £20,000 of working capital, say, rather than build, uh, pay that in in one lump sum, you may restrict your drawings by £500 a month until that £20,000 has built up. Um, that's something that practices are having to offer more and more, Chris, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the game's changed really over the last few years. And as practices have found new partners a little harder to come by, they've had to sort of acquiesce to them a little more. And um, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch upon this uh, later in terms of parity shares. But uh, yeah, it's much more common now to really kind of go the extra mile to help a new GP partner. And often a restriction of drawings for a time is a lot more palatable than yeah, having to put in huge amounts of capital up front. Yeah, I think the odds are stacked in the GP's favour now, effectively. You know, back um, in the glory days, all the power rested with the practice and they had eight people applying for one partnership. Um, whereas now there may be eight partnerships of one applicant. So I think that's where it's changed. Um, I don't know, Tommy, whether you kind of chat to colleagues and had any experience of that change over recent years. I mean, definitely. When I took my partnership two years ago, um, you know, it was all about locoming and locoming was amazing and locoming was, you know, good to me. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, the game has shifted. I, I just want to reiterate two really important things that you said there, um, because I think this is something that a lot of GPs don't realize. And, you know, when I 
got the bill for my buy-in. I was like, <clears throat> okay, that's quite a lot of money. But uh, that point that you made that you get, uh, you get tax relief on the interest on a business loan, right? So you don't get tax relief on your mortgage, on your house, right? I mean, if you did, that'd be amazing. Um, <laughs> but if you take a mortgage or business loan on your GP to buy in, you get yeah. tax relief on that, which is something that I think a lot of people don't appreciate how good a deal that can can uh, be. Uh, so I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And uh, yeah, the ways that you mentioned to buy in, I'm going to add a fourth, which is that I did a hybrid where I took reduced drawings to build mm-hmm. up my money in the capital account. And that just suited my personal circumstances. And I loaned a portion of the money to buy into the uh, capital account as well. And again, that was from uh, excellent advice from my accountant. Just that was the best way for me. So really, that that business note tax relief thing that you mentioned, that is key in my view. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, no, for sure. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned the hybrid because in reality, that is actually more common than a full restriction of drawings because ultimately what you want from a new partner is some sort of investment, um, that buy-in. So not just the emotional investment, which hopefully they're making by taking the partnership, but you do want some sort of financial commitment up front just to give you the um, reassurance that after two weeks or a couple of bad consultations, they're not going to be off down the road kind of thing. So I think in reality, instead of a 20,000 buy-in, maybe a 10,000 buy-in with the other 10,000 being built up over 12 to 18 months is actually something that we would see more than a full restriction of drawings. So yeah, good point well made on that one, Tommy, I'd say. No, and I think you know that wasn't that was something that I negotiated because it suited my personal financial yeah. situation. And maybe what you said is, uh, you know, uh, ten years ago, if I'd started negotiations like that, they might have said, uh, "There's the door, Doctor Perkins. We <laughs> never want to see you again." But you know, I think young partners or potential partners are in quite a strong position at the moment because, as I said, the right partnership I think is still a great deal. And the maybe you've got a bit more negotiating power than you once had. Uh, obviously, it's got to work for everyone. But yeah, uh, okay, cool. Um, so we talked a bit about the working capital. That was a great uh, explanation about how that works. Um, another massive area is property ownership. So should we just talk about that briefly? Yeah, no, definitely. So property ownership isn't for everyone um, in terms of not all GP practices have their buildings owned by the partners in the partnership. In fact, less and less. Um, many are in, in leased accommodation. So what we're going to say for the next five minutes is going to relate to property owning practices um, and kind of leasing a building as a separate set of circumstances that we may give a couple of minutes to as well. Um, Effectively, if the building is owned by the practice and its partners, your property capital is just simply your share of the equity in that building. So that's the value of the building less the balance of the outstanding loans. Exactly the same principle as your residential homes. You know, So if you live in a house with worth £500,000 with a mortgage of £250,000, your equity is £250,000. And that's probably shared between you and your spouse in most cases. Um, Whereas in a GP practice, there may be 10 of you with a building worth a million pounds and a loan of half a million pounds. Your total equity is half a million pounds. Assuming the 10 of you own that equally, it's going to cost you 50 grand each to buy in and you're going to get 50 grand when you leave in very, very simple terms. Now, the clever bit about owning a property in general practice is that the government pays you rent to operate out of your own building, so-called notional rent. It's effectively them giving you an income stream for performing services that they're asking you to perform, albeit out of your own building. 
So there's been a lot of negative press around. We mentioned negative press right at the start, but particularly around property ownership, it really is viewed as a millstone around the neck. There's a huge amount of perceived risk um, in terms of you hear all these things banded around, such as last man standing, something that you will all hear, um, i.e. I don't want to be left owning this building on my own. <laughs> but if you speak to anyone outside of general practice with fresh eyes, they would say, what is this madness, basically? 7% yield, rental income underwritten by the government. You know, Why do you think there are companies out there going around buying up GP practices and then renting them back to you guys? It's because they're basically a very good investment, the right one, again. So again, you know, it's not specific investment advice, and it is very much a case of have a look at the notional rent income, have a look at the loan terms, et cetera, et cetera. But if we can get into the position where you're buying into the right building, it really, really should, A, enhance your income from day one, and B, form a, an additional part of your retirement plan, to be quite honest with you. And as NHS pensions get more and more squeezed, and it, which is a whole different um, podcast, I'm sure, <laughs> I think um, property ownership becomes, again, the right property owned becomes a nice string to your bow in terms of retirement planning. So just a little bit of detail on it in terms of if you own a property and you receive your notional rent, let's just say £100,000 per year comes into the practice, that is physically shown as income in your profit and loss account. You will presumably have some sort of mortgage against that building. Let's say your loan interest is £50,000 per year. So you've got 100000 of rental income, 50000 of loan interest going out. So you are generating £50,000 a year of just profit, which is literally just the excess of the income, less the expense of the loan interest. Now, the one thing that's really, really important, especially these days, and some accountants do miss this and some practices do miss this, is the capital repayments on those loans. So you might look at it on paper and think, great, notional rent 100000 loan interest 50000 we've got an extra fifty grand. let us bump those drawings right up and party on. Um, the reality is now there's very few 100% interest-only loans around. Um, so likelihood is at least 50% of all practice debt will be on a capital repayment basis. So what we have to remember is the cash retention to pay those capital repayments, basically. So going right back to when Chris was talking about drawings earlier, this is a really important thing. If you're talking to your accountant about your drawings and you own the property or you're going to own the property in a practice, you just need to ask the question about how are the loans financed? You know, are my drawings being restricted to pay the capital repayments on the loan? But again, it should be quite a simple piece of work for your accountant to have a look at. Um, yeah, and run through that with you when you're making the decision. And then the final thing on property, which is can be a real bone of contention. Hopefully you never came across this, Tommy, um, when you were buying in, if you do own the property, and that is valuation method. So what you'll find is the person who's leaving the practice thinks the building's worth £4 million, funny enough. And then the person who's buying into the practice thinks it's worth £400,000. Now, luckily, hopefully, um, these practices should have strong partnership agreement in place. So whilst we're not solicitors, I would say it's equally important to review the partnership agreement as it is to review the accounts. Um, and you need to make sure that you are comfortable with that valuation method on the property because, yeah, people do have different interests in these transactions. 
Yeah. Um, all I'm going to say on that is I highly recommend you getting your own valuation done by an expert GP surveyor. We work with a few, so drop me an email if you need one. Um, that's about all I'm going to say on, on that. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I would agree with that as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's move on. I mean, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a negotiation. So yeah. Um, hi to my fellow partners out there. Hopefully you're not listening. Um, yeah, I just want to drill down into this because... Um, I feel like I'm swimming against the tide and I always feel a bit risky when I'm swimming against the tide. But what you said is the right property, right? Can, can you've got to do your due diligence on this, but it can be an amazing investment. It can be an investment that's yielding 7% a year. You're deducting the interest on the loan that you finance that against tax. Uh, you're effectively a landlord to yourself with the government paying your rent. And as you said, there are companies out there who see this as such a no-brainer the right building, uh, that they buy them up and then take the profits from that. And they're, you know, huge, huge multi-million pound companies uh, that mm -hmm. do that. Um, so, yeah, I think... And, and then sometimes I see doctors say, I, I don't want to buy into the surgery. I'm going to buy a residential buy-to-let. I, I think just just run the numbers with yeah. someone who knows what they're doing. Because I'm if you run the numbers on the right building, it can be a great investment. This is not investment advice, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, it's something that I see a lot. Um, you know, people are scared of the upfront thing. But if you sit down with a clear head and somebody knows the numbers and runs them properly, you know, it can be a great deal. So yeah, really, really good points you made there. Um, I think awesome. on that, Tommy, as well, the other thing with the property side is it is the upfront capital cost that can put people off. But actually you might be able to reorganize the debt as well. So looking at the specific circumstances, you may be able to just borrow up to the value of the property because fortunately you are still GPs and banks still like you. Um, so, you know, it's absolutely not unusual to see 100% loan to value borrowing in general practice today, whereas it is in, you know, if you were looking at a commercial property development, for example, you'd never get over 70% loan to value. So the other option as a new GP is just accept the debt. You know, as a as a firm, we certainly have no problem with debt as a concept, especially with interest rates when they are where they are today. You know, if you can forward fix something, bring that debt up, and you know that it's serviceable, then actually you can invest in inverted commas in a property without investing in inverted commas a penny um, of upfront cash. So it's just that sort of conversation that you need to be having, because unfortunately, a lot of advisors out there. Um, might not go straight to that conversation. So I think it's worth just asking the question of your accountant or whoever you're asking to have a look at that piece of work for you, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me, I literally just finished off paying my hideous, hideous medical stu student debt. I was debt-free and I was living the debt-free life. And then it was like, right, here's another debt. And I was a bit scared of the debt, but you've got to think about good debt versus bad debt. So bad yeah. debt is high interest rate that's used to finance an asset which depreciates in value, car loans, credit cards, store cards, right? Bad debt. Good debt is low interest rate, which is financing an asset which traditionally would appreciate in value. Uh, so you've got to think about it in those terms. But like I said, for me, I just finished paying down like uh, you know tens of thousands of student loans and then I was debt-free for about two years and then I took on this debt. So. <laughs> but um, get, get, just run the numbers with someone who knows what they're doing. Um, I think is yeah, definitely recommended. Okay. Um, so we talked a bit about the property. Um, one thing that... Uh, there's lots of jargon associated with this and we've uh, talked about some of it already, but talk to me about parity. Um, what is it? Okay. Well, parity tends to be a bit of a largely outdated concept now, but... It basically dates from the time when GP partners were a lot easier to come by, as we've already spoken about. And it basically works on the basis that you gradually work up to a full profit share over time. So you don't get a full profit share to start with. 
you may get, say, 80% of it in the first year, 90% in the second, for example, and then a full, what we call parity share, where you're literally at parity with the other partners. Now, we don't see this so much now because it does, to be honest, tend to uh, stem from, shall we say, long-standing senior partners that wanted new partners to pay their dues and couldn't possibly countenance the uh, thought of someone coming in at full parity from the start. The harsh reality now is that uh, a lot of those senior partners have retired and practices are struggling to get partners. So it is quite rare to see it now. We do see it from time to time, and it tends to be more where you've got a really, really high earning practice, you know, really big numbers, often a dispensing practice. And it's sort of seen as a, yeah, the kind of the quid pro quo for having these large profits is you you build up to them over time, basically. But overall, you will you know, benefit from this massively over time. Um, what we do tend to see a bit more of now, rather than working to parity, is fixed profit shares. And this is literally where a partner agrees a fixed share, maybe for the first year or for the first two years. And this just could be, say, an amount, say £80,000 plus employer superannuation. Now, what this does is it tends to act as a, a bridge towards a more standard profit share. So if, say, your GP partner has a probationary period of six months, 12 months, whatever it may be, it has the effect of giving clarity of earnings for the GP in that time. And there's a bit of a soft landing for them in terms of uh, the transition from a, perhaps a salaried model to a partnership model, and also for the practice as well, because it um, just gives them clarity in the first year. And as I say, if there is a probationary period in place, it can tie in with that, and it can work well for some practices. It's very much down to what the practice feels is best for them, however, and the individual partner. And again, it's it's very different for every practice, and it's just finding the best fit for everyone, really. So it's it's something that it's rare, to be honest. We probably see it in only a small percentage of our GP practices, but it does happen. And it's just another option that some um, practices and partners have got and how to remunerate them in the early days, really. Yeah, I'm probably about to alienate any senior outgoing partners with my next comment about parity, because... I think this is a negotiation. And yeah, when your senior partner who's leaving now bought in, he probably or she had a long uh, period before they got to parity, right? But the game has changed. Uh, We've already established that. We talked about it today. uh, And it's a negotiation. So, you know, it's not a deal breaker for me, but I think a significant parity adjustment, yeah, I I, I think I'll try to negotiate around that. And as I said, that probably alienated all senior outgoing partners here. And the young ones are like, yeah, no parity. We're straight in at full drawings. Uh, but, but, I do you know, agree, I, though, like Tommy, it's quite, it can be problematic if two people, if somebody feels that they're doing the same job as somebody else for a different um, reward. And that can actually, I have actually seen that cause angst, not even just within general practice, but in business generally. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's fair. And also times have changed. You know, those younger partners will be paying those pensions for those retiring partners anyway. So um, it swings and roundabouts. Yeah. (laughs) And flipping it around slightly to support our more senior colleagues, uh, you know, they've lost or are losing, correct me if I'm wrong, seniority payments, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been phased out. So, and I think that's a massive shame because the the more experienced, I'm quite junior, but the more experienced I get, the more I I realize the benefit of experience. And we're phasing out of seniority we don't we no longer reward experience and you cannot buy experience you know it's it's an amazing asset which i'm trying to get, you know get but as a junior partner a long way off so uh yeah hopefully that's uh, slightly fairer to those uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um 
Cool, cool. Okay, it's really good to get that clear. And uh, that fixed share of profit thing as well, I think that's a really nice idea as well. Um, all right, so you've done all this. You've been through the numbers. The numbers look good. Uh, it, you know, you've got an idea in your mind about your drawings uh, per uh, session. And then uh, in your first year, you get your tax bill. Um, and you've also not a parity and you're buying into the capital account as well. Uh, and you might be slightly underwhelmed with the number that eventually lands in your bank account. Should we talk about that first year of tax and some common pitfalls that you guys see there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the key thing here is that there's a very good chance that any new partner will not have been self-employed previously. If they've been a salary GP, everything will have been dealt with under PAYE and they would never have had to consider the uh, tax element. Uh, what they'll need to do straight away is register for self-assessment with HMRC and deal with their own taxes. Now, the practice accountant should always help them with this. But as you say, Tommy, there are a lot of things to consider, particularly in the first year, which can come as a big shock to people if it's not properly explained. Now, without going into too much detail about the self-assessment system, because um, you know, life's too short, quite frankly, uh, you make payments on account twice a year in January and July, and that's done in advance of your of your tax bill, basically. Now, in the first year of being a partner, the problem arises because you won't have made these on-account tax bills in advance. So what we will almost certainly see is a huge tax bill in the first of January after you, you've become a partner, basically, or after the, the year end of you becoming a partner. Now, in addition to that, you have to make the whole tax payment and also your payment on account for the following tax year in advance. So you basically make 18 months worth of tax payments in one hit in your first tax payment as a partner. And that can, as I'm sure you've seen before, come as a huge shock to people. So this absolutely needs to be explicitly explained to any new partner in their first year that they're keeping a, a huge amount back for, for tax, basically. Um, in some circumstances, we see the practices making tax payments for the partners. Now, what we should say at this point is this isn't the practice actually paying the tax for you. What they're doing is they're just administering this on your behalf, basically. So the practice will make the payments from their bank account. But as a result of that, your drawings get adjusted. So the drawings that you get from the practice are effectively net of tax. And in theory, you don't have to deal with the tax payments yourself. Now, of course, it's absolutely vital that that is done correctly, because if it's not, then you could be left with diminished capital and still a huge tax bill to pay. Things can get out of hand very, very quickly. So it's vital that uh, the accountants are on top of that, basically. And again, that it's all explained and transparent to the new partner from the start in terms of what their drawings are and what tax provisions being put in for what period. You know, it can get very messy with um, marrying up the periods of accounts, the periods of tax in the first couple of years in particular. So it's absolutely vital that this is all explained. Now, a couple of other things we need to consider for tax in the first few years. Um, student loan payments, there will be um, new partners will almost certainly have these uh, still going on. At the moment, they're paid through PAYE. This will also be paid through self-assessment tax uh, from now on. Uh, that also needs to be factored into calculations of likely drawings if, um, again, if the practice is paying the tax bill. Um, child benefit uh, for any parents who are becoming new partners. You may have found as a salary GP that your taxable income uh, does not exceed the threshold at which you have to start repaying child benefits, and that's £60,000, and between 50 and 60, you have to uh, pay a little bit of it back. 
Um, so this may not have been the case for a new partner. However, they may find as their earnings increase as a partner, suddenly they've got to repay this child benefit back. And again, it's um, a big tax hit they may not have been expecting. Now, something just important to note on that is that the pension contributions you make, the NHS pension contributions, are fully tax deductible. So when you're considering your taxable income, in inverted commas, for child benefit purposes, this may be lower than your profit level suggests. So we get some partners that think, oh, I'm earning £60,000, I'm going to stop claiming child benefit. Now, the problem with stopping claiming child benefit is it's very difficult to get it back again once you've disclaimed it. Um, so it's very important to look at the pension contributions as well and see how that affects your actual taxable income, because you may find that you can keep more of it than you think, basically. So again, always work with uh, your practice accountant, your personal accountant, your personal circumstances. Basically, everybody has different circumstances. Everybody. There are people at different stages of their lives, different stages of their careers. Some will have children, some won't. Some will have investments, some won't. Some will have debts, some won't. So your tax position is completely bespoke to you. And it's important that you work with your accountant to find what is right for you in terms of how you administer your tax, how you plan for it going forward. There will not be a one size fits all. So as part of any discussion with um, new partners and a new partnership, you absolutely need to look at the bespoke position for your tax, basically. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, if you've just come from a medical school, then an employed doctor and then an employed salaried GP, this might be the first time that you've had to deal with all of these things. And it's incredibly complex. So I think by now, the listeners are getting the idea that you just need to you just need to get your wallet out and pay for some specialist advice because it will pay. You know, the, the adage is that a good accountant will save you more than they cost you. And that's definitely been my experience because it's just so complicated, this whole thing. Um, yeah. And um, that first tax bill, um, I think my accountant put it quite succinctly. He was like, it's going to look like a telephone number. And um, <clears throat> it wasn't far off for the reasons that you've mentioned. But just if you're aware of it, you can plan for it. And then when you get it, you're like, oh, it's actually a bit less than I thought. Happy days. Um, exactly. I, if, you're, if you're putting back you know, 35 40% of it every month from your drawings, then you're prepared, basically. And preparation is everything. And yeah, as long as you know from the start what's um what it could be then it's fine it's when yeah no one's told you that's the 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 big issue you only know what you know and what you've been told and if no one tells you this is a problem you don't know it's a problem and then yeah, you get to january and and the tears start basically yeah <laughs> expect a telephone number tax bill and you won't be far off uh, my experience um, okay um so we briefly talked about this uh, a little bit. I was hoping we might go through one podcast without mentioning the pension, but uh, it seems like it's impossible whether we're talking about property or investing or whatever. Um, but tell me a bit about how the pension works as a partner because it is materially different for them how it works to salaries. Unfortunately, the pension is so interwoven into everything we do, both as accountants and for you guys as GPs, it, we have to keep um, coming back to it. Unfortunately, it's not always a... A pleasant subject, as we all know. But um, the big thing to note as a GP partner is that not only are you responsible for your employees' contribution, you're responsible for the employer's element as well. So because basically as a partner, you are the employer as well, effectively employing yourself. So straight away, the contributions you pay will increase markedly as a GP partner. Now, historically, there has been funding within the whole NHS payment system that GP practices get 
to take account of this and the various funding streams that practices get are designed or have been designed to include an element to fund this employer superannuation. Now, as time's gone by, it's largely just kind of been subsumed into the main payments and it's not as um, as clear as it once was, but that was certainly the idea. But basically, it's, say if you have profits of £100,000, using a very simplistic example here, then after employers superannuation at 14.38% and employees superannuation at maybe 13.5%, You've got a net there of just over £72,000. And think of it in drawings terms, which you have to do as a partner per month. That's about £6,000 per month. Now, if you look at that £100,000, you may be kind of tricked into thinking, oh, I'm going to be getting X amount per month. And then the pension kicks in and it reduces that amount significantly. So, again, it's getting into that mindset of what your drawing will be as a partner and really understanding what the the whole implications of the pension contributions are as a partner. Um, As ever, you need to be aware that your pension is not dependent on these contributions. So those additional contributions you're making are not going to increase your pension. Your pension is based on your pensionable earnings. So let's say it's £100,000 in this case. Uh, Assuming you're a member of the newer pension scheme, we won't go into the details of that today and the differences, but assuming you are, um, basically, one over 54 of that £100,000 is added to your pension each year. So just over £1,850 in this case. The contributions you make are just funding the NHS pension scheme as a whole and do not get allocated to your pot, as it were. Now, as a GP, you are what we call a practitioner for pension purposes. And that means that your pension is based on an addition of these amounts over time. It's not based on a final salary like uh, non-GP members would be. And in terms of how this is administered is the big change as a GP partner. Basically, every year, a GP partner has to produce what we call a type one superannuation certificate. And that records your pensionable earnings for the year. And it's a, a rather complex calculation to actually get to the number. Um, but once we have that number, we can see what you should have paid in pension contributions based on those earnings. Now, prior to that, you will have made on-account payments at the start of each NHS year in April. An estimate is made of your likely earnings. On-account payments are then deducted from the practice funding. And then at the end of the year, when we produce the certificate, any balancing payment or refund to bring it up to the correct level is made again through the practice funding. Now, it's vital that all of this is calculated correctly and reflected in your drawings because your capital account, your working capital that we've spoken about already in the accounts, should reflect these superannuation movements. So it's vital that the drawings reflect this. Now, in terms of the administration of GP pensions, it's dealt with by PCSE. Um, Let's say that the mistakes can occur if if we're being kind. And yeah, there's often many, many years of outstanding GP pensions. Uh, sometimes practices don't get pension contributions deducted for new partners uh, or too much. The balancing adjustments um, don't get reflected properly. So it's vital that this is all kept account of um, by accountants. First of all, so we know what the position is and also so it's being chased. You know, if no one chases these things, they'll never get sorted, basically. So as a partner, it's vital that your accountants are chasing all this up. Um, well, pretty much every month we find we have to do it for, for our clients. 
to make sure that your position is up to date in terms of your contributions and more importantly, your actual pension position as well. You've been incredibly diplomatic about PCSE there. I think any any GPs or specialist medical accounts listening to this will know what you're alluding to. But I think the point to stress there is that the administration of the pension via PCSE is not reliable. So you you just can't rely on them and you need an expert to oversee it all to make sure that things are going right. And this goes all right through from locum GPs who are struggling to their pensions right through to partners uh, that are struggling as well. So um, yeah, maybe... Tommy, it's it's, it's a national scandal, the the pensions issue. It really is. And I'm amazed that it's not taken up at a much higher level than it is. I mean, if Medics Money want to do a campaign on that, we'll be behind it all the way, basically. (laughs) We've even got partners that have retired and are drawing their pension who still don't think their pension's right, you know? So it's literally from straight out of med school to people that are already receiving their money. It yeah. is. Um, I know you've had um, Guy Roper on a few of your podcasts, you know, and um, I think they're keeping him busy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it is. It is a scandal. We've actually got a podcast with uh, Nick Grundy, who's from uh, GP Survival, and they've actually managed to get some compensation back for uh, okay. GPs. So um, stay tuned to the podcast on that one. But um, mm. it is a scandal, and I wish that we could do something about it. But I think this is what higher powers such as a union is for and let's just uh, move on from that uh, before we get in really <laughs> hot water there uh, but it, it is a disgrace it's absolutely absolutely ridiculous um, and it's just treating GPs with disdain really we're sending all this money to them and it's like a random yep. number generator exactly. I shouldn't need to pay you guys money to sort this no. out it should be done by the scheme and it's not but um, there's probably like you're like let's not libel anyone and move on to positive <laughs> <laughs> positive uh, something positive really positive uh, that I missed out on by a few months so, and I am still oh. bitter about it uh, tell me about <laughs> tell me about the new to partnership payment uh, because that is something we get loads of questions on about I missed out on it by a few months and I'm still uh, bitter about it so um, yeah good news for everyone except me <laughs> well sorry to hear about your personal woe on that front but I think um <laughs> As with anything with a finite deadline, there will be uh, winners and losers. Hopefully, you can make up for it in other aspects of your partnership. You know, your good deal that you negotiated when buying in, that sort of thing. Um, in terms fair of deal. We're move, calling it a fair deal, not a good fair deal, deal, right? A fair, fair deal. deal. Fair <laughs> deal, both sides. Um, in terms of the actual new to partnership payment, I mean, it's effectively a golden hello um, that's been introduced to encourage and incentivize potential new partners for all of the reasons we've spoken about for the last hour or so in terms of... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there telling people why not to become a partner. So can we dangle a financial carrot and attract some new partners in that way? Um, it's not a concept that's totally alien to the public sector. You know, it's been used within education. I remember when my wife qualified many years ago and we left uni um, and they were short of English teachers. I think, yeah, that helped towards the old house deposit back then. Um, so it's not an alien concept public sector wise. So in this specific case with the new to partnership payment, it can be worth up to £20,000. So that's for a whole time partner. So an eight-session partner could attract £20,000 of funding. This is then prorated down, you know, so you can't do take a one-session partnership and access £20,000 of funding. It would just be a straight £2,500 in that situation per session, basically. Um, You need to remain a partner for five years for this money to remain active. So I think mindset-wise, it needs to be seen as a loan, a 60-month loan that will become non-repayable in 60 months' time. Otherwise, I think all sorts of, and I know already that people have accessed this funding and left already. Um, So there'll be a bit of unpicking to do. 
normally some sort of agreement will be in place. In terms of how it's treated, uh, one other thing to note, you mustn't have been a partner before, so you can't just jump ship from your current partnership to get your hands on £20,000 and move to the practice down the road. So you need to be becoming a partner for the first time. I guess the whole idea of this is to attract new people into partnerships. So, so that makes perfect sense. In terms of how that money is treated, there, there is um, a little bit of flexibility. Um, it can be, it's paid to the practice, but it can be allocated specifically to a partner. We've seen practices write up um, bespoke agreements where it can be used to release to their working capital account over the five years. You know, like we were just talking about in terms of building up your capital, which I think is yeah, really like interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting concept because cash-wise, the practice has the cash and you also get the commitment from the partner without that partner needing to go and get a £20,000 bank loan. But you need to make sure, obviously, at that stage is that you just do have an agreement drawn up. Um, fairly small document, I'm sure but yeah. just a little legal document to, to recognise that that's what you're doing. And so, yeah, there's a few ways that you can do it. Most um, partnership agreements now, if they're getting amended, they'll have a clause in there about this new to partnership payment, just because it's something, obviously, that we're going to see more and more of over time. As Tommy, as you alluded to a couple of years ago, unfortunately, you didn't quite um, access it. In terms of, sorry to keep bringing that up, in terms of um, applying for the, new to partner payment it is quite a simple process it's just done um via the application form on pcse and fortunately they do seem to administer this in my experience more quickly and successfully than they do nhs pensions at least which is good news yeah uh, i like the way that you talk about that uh, think about it like a loan uh, which after five years once you've stayed the course you can cash in because yeah you know you can't predict the future who knows what's going to happen um no. And I like that idea of using it to get to parity or, uh, you know, sorry, to get to buy into the capital account or something like that. Um, yeah, on the loan point, Tommy, just to say that if you were to leave after one year, for example, um, 80% of it would be repayable, two years, 60% and so on. So it's kind of a sliding scale. So using it to build up working capital is ideal because you could almost mirror the loan term with the build up term um, yep. so that. You know, so that you're always in a position where one party doesn't owe the other party something if something out of your control happens. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm trying to convince myself of this, but I think it's uh, nice to have and definitely sweetens the deal, but it probably wouldn't sway me from I never want to be a partner to I'm definitely going to be a partner. Uh, but maybe I'm just trying to convince myself I literally missed out on it by about four or five months. Um, but I, think, I agree with that. I don't think you want to go into partnership, to be honest, for a one-off payment. You know, if I was going to be a four-session partner for 20 years, I wouldn't want to base that on 10 grand up front. You know, I'd want to base it on all the things we spoke about in the very first five minutes of this podcast. Um, that is important, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 20 years' time, you're going to be one of those bitter senior partners. Yeah. Bemoaning the people that get the funding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> the only other thing with that, Tommy, with the new to partnership payment is the training allowance. So, yes. uh, which I should mention quickly because we say how positive it is. Um, so, as an individual, you will also receive uh, £3,000 training allowance, which most of our clients and contacts have um, been using for, to be honest, a lot of it for financial stuff, um, also legal stuff, people management, so the non clinical aspects of. You know, by this point, you've been offered a partnership. You're clearly um, a very good clinician. Otherwise, you wouldn't be getting offered a partnership. It's about building more rounded leaders for the future, I guess. Um, so 
one of the things again that people can contact us about after the event anytime is you know where to to use that money so we've put together some similar ish to this but kind of webinars and a little bit more fleshed out on the detail because of time um finance courses i know that there's plenty of um, partnership agreement legal type courses out there we've worked with outside organizations who do things like people management and the interpersonal skills and that kind of stuff so if people are looking at ways to i think having something like a finance a legal a people skill it will it will create you know we, let's not make any mistake about it we know the nhs are trying to create leaders of the future you know the whole pcn clinical director system is designed around finding these people that are going to drive the thing forward over the next 10 years you know we are seeing a new wave of partners our gp partners and non gp partners that are looking to pick this whole thing up and run with it over the next 10 or 20 years um and actually having that funding should be seen as a positive because i think it it pushes people to do things that they would have liked to have done but they would have ignored if the money wasn't there yeah Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of it. Um, and overall, I mean, it's a massively positive step. Um, so definitely. Um, you touched on something there um, just before we wrap up. Uh, you mentioned non-GP partners. Um, should we say a bit about that? Because uh, this is an expanding area. Yeah, definitely. So just a very, very quick summary on this. I mean, the headline is general practice is changing. Um, there's a fundamental shift within general practice. So 10 or 15 years ago, 7,000 patient practice was for full-time GP partners in 98% of cases at 1750 patients per whole timer. That's basically out of the window. It's been um, probably over the last five or six years, we've started to see the multidisciplinary teams picking up and that's just obviously been massively escalated over the last two years with the advent of primary care networks. So this is one of the things I was alluding to earlier when I said that if I was thinking about a partnership I'd have to know what was happening at network level and staff. Um so there's what's called the additional roles money which is all of the money that's coming into primary care networks to effectively take on these other healthcare professionals, you know, be that pharmacists, paramedics, physician associates, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um and more and more practices are being staffed in this way. There's two points to this. One thing is it makes assessing the profitability of a GP practice a lot more difficult and it makes some of the old metrics a little bit defunct to be quite honest with you. You know, there used to be a lot of benchmarking information around where you would take figures and divide by x y or z whole time equivalent this that and the other or you'd look at staff costs per patient. We really need to now look beyond that and try and attribute some value to clinical sessions rather than doing it in the what I'd call the old fashioned way. So that's the first point, but the second point is what that has done is that's empowered a lot of non-GPs um to to play a more active role in both the clinical side of it and also the governance side of it. So we're seeing pharmacists as partners, we've got ANPs as partners. More and more we're seeing business managers strategic business managers quite often coming from outside of the public sector for example who you know we love to work with and to to get into the detail of the business side of it a little bit more with them we're seeing more and more of them becoming partners so i think it's just to say that everything is on the table now i think maybe 10 years ago i don't know if people would have looked down their nose at that but it certainly would have been seen as quite funky um a little bit out there um i think but now i think it's very much accepted that if you've got uh a good individual in your organization then why wouldn't you consider making them a partner just because of their 
job title or their clinical qualifications. And just from my point of view, just one final point on that is I think it can actually be a huge positive because what you end up with is you end up with a wider skill set at partner level. So rather than seven or eight people that have been on the same journey is you might have five or six GPs. And I think obviously it's important that you kind of retain that core because fundamentally you're a GP practice. But if you can bring in you know, a business expert from outside, maybe he's got experience in two or three different fields, and then maybe a pharmacist or an AMP has got a slightly different dynamic there, I think actually that can be really powerful at partnership level. The difficulty with that is how do you attribute value to that person? So obviously for you guys as GP partners, in 99.9% of cases, you're probably going to be getting paid per sessions. So it's quite simple. You know, if you do eight sessions, you'll probably show be twice as much as somebody does four sessions because ostensibly you're doing the same job. When it becomes difficult is when, you know, the, the business manager says, yeah, no, I want to become a partner and I should definitely be paid the same as an eight session partner. <laughs> and all the GPs go, pardon? You know, four sessions max. And then it's a bit like we said earlier of any new partner, the negotiation begins and it depends on your role. I think as a business manager, it's quite easy you can almost incentivize it to a certain extent because you can say, well, you can be four session with the ability to enhance that if we hit X, Y, or Z. Um, but yeah, I have seen some interesting negotiations from other healthcare professionals and they've ended up everywhere between two sessions and eight sessions, I think. So it's just something else to consider if we do go down that route. Yeah, I think it's probably something you're going to see more of going forward um, mm. for the reasons that you mentioned, but that's a really good summary. So we've covered so much ground today. This has been so useful. And I think, you know, the reason we we all wanted to record this is because, as I said at the start, the right GP partnership can still be a great deal, a great supportive environment and a great career. Uh, but you've got to know what you're looking out for because not all are great. Um, so do you want to just give us a real quick summary of the most important points that you guys see? And if people have liked what they heard, where can they get hold of you? Yeah, I think in terms of the most important things to consider, I think first of all, as an individual, you need to be sure you want to be a partner. That's the key thing. You know, partnership isn't for everyone. And there are a lot of responsibilities that come with it. And don't look upon it as just something you feel you have to do, basically, because there are plenty of GPs out there that are happy to remain as salaried or as locums, have portfolio careers forever. You've just got to go into it with your eyes open. And assuming you're doing that, make sure that you think of yourself as a business owner, basically, because that's what you're doing. You are becoming a bit owner of a multi-million pound business. Also, you have the same say in that business as the partner that's been there 30 years. That's something important to, to say as well, is make sure that you kind of know your position and your strengths within that organisation uh, right from the start. I think it's vital, as we said before, that you seek um, appropriate professional advice to look at the partnership accounts and also the partnership agreements, uh, get them reviewed, find out exactly what it means for you, your potential earnings, your tax position, your pension position. As accountants, um, we can be guilty at times of um, trying to prove how much we know to people. Now, a good accountant will be breaking it down into language that you understand. GPs are very intelligent and educated people. You are used to um, breaking things down in simple to understand ways for patients. It's vital your accountant is doing that for you as well. Um, 
find out as much as possible about the practice. And as Rob said at the start, it's not just about the financial considerations. Do you want to work there? Do you like the people? Is it a nice surgery building? Is it the sort of patients you want to be working with, et cetera, et cetera? Does it feel like a good fit for you? Um, and I think also look very carefully at the new partnership payment. It is there to be used. It's a decent amount of money. It can be very useful in financing things um, in the early years for you. And I think, yeah, just, again, just keep speaking to the practice, see how flexible they are on things, see how willing they are to embrace ideas and how well they fit into their network as well. Because going forward, you know, general practice is changing. As we've said, GP partners will be at the forefront of that. And it's just a, a case of driving it as you want it to be, really. So have that confidence to yeah, drive this thing forward in the way you want to, basically. Yeah, in terms of just summing up kind of ourselves and how you contact us. First of all, Tommy, thanks very much. Apologies if we've gone on a little bit long, but there's quite a lot to get into with the partnership stuff. Um, you know, we can help any individual who's looking to join a practice. We can provide the sort of bespoke reports that we've been talking about and pick out any of the issues that may be pertinent. For our existing clients, we speak to new partners as a matter of course and do these sort of reports as a matter of course anyway. Um, you know, regardless of whether we act for you personally or not, we can get a good feel for most practice accounts and we're able to advise whether the numbers stack up. In addition to that, we can offer you advice around some of the training that you might be looking to access with your training money. You know, and just generally at PCN practice or individual level, if there's anything that you want to bounce off of a specialist accountant, then we're here for you to do that. Um, in terms of contacting us, hopefully uh, Tommy will be able to provide some links or something in the show notes. But our website is www.mshealth.co.uk, MS for more Scarrett. Uh, there you can sign up for our periodic GP newsletter. We've got a bespoke knowledge base on there for GP practices with articles that we've written for other publications. And if you want to drop us an email, probably our generic one at info at mshealth.co.uk is the best email to get us on. And yeah, wherever you are in the country, if we can help you, we will. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. That was a really uh, useful run through, slightly longer than anticipated, but there's so much to cover and we just scratch scratching the surface here. But hopefully that's given some of the listeners who might be thinking about this, uh, some things to think about and uh, the confidence to uh, sort of get into the detail on this. So thank you so much for your time, guys. Really look forward to welcoming you back on the podcast uh, in future. Thank you very much, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Take care. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.